Well, amen. Thank you, choir. Thank you, church. It's so good to be back with you. We are going to rejoin our series in the book of Jude. Our series in the book of Jude. It's If you don't know where that is, it's the, the book before the last book in the Bible. So you get to Revelation and hang a left, and it's that page right before you get to the book of Revelation. And we've been walking through this series called Contend, because verse 3 is the theme verse of the whole book. It's, it's the exhortation from Jude to the church to which he is writing, uh, which includes us. And, and he's urging us to, to fight or to contend for the once delivered to the saints faith. So there's one faith, there's one body of belief on which the church stands in every generation and we are to contend for it. And one of the reasons that we have to fight or to contend is because uh, Satan is, is active and at work trying to bring people into the body of the church, into the life of the church, who seem like they know the gospel. They'll even say some of the right things, but ultimately they are not there for the good of the gospel. They are there to undermine the church. And so this morning we're going to talk about contending by recognizing the danger that these Secret invaders, as he calls them in verse 4, pose to the church. We, we need to understand what we're dealing with and to recognize the danger. As when we're in Christ, we are no longer motivated by selfishness, but by the selflessness which is in Christ. Which is why we do things like go to Puerto Rico and uh, bless the, the students at Burlington Elementary and the teachers at Burlington Elementary. Because we, we have found someone in whom we delight, who is greater than ourself, and, and that person is Jesus. And, and because our delight is in Christ, it makes us others-focused rather than self-absorbed and self-focused. And we saw two weeks ago in this series that, that when that happens, we go from being unreasoning animals motivated by the next thing that will motivate us to gospel-transformed saints. But these intruders are not submitting to God. They're not submitting to godly authority. They're rebelling and making church life all about themselves. They're arrogant and they are ignorant of the transformation that saving faith should bring to our lives. And then in verses 11 through 16, which we'll read in just a moment, Jude extends this same line of argument and he deepens his warnings about the Secret invaders, if you will, so that we can recognize them and the danger that they present. I remember well when I was at Northside High School uh, about five years ago or so, um, that, that they, were, they were exhorting us to drive safely. And they were encouraging us to, to wear our seatbelts and not to drink and to drive and to, to pay attention and to have two hands on the wheel. And this was before cell phone and, and every other distraction that's available in the car. But I remember they, they had a, like a pep rally sort of deal out in the, the stadium there by the football field. And they, they put all the, I don't know, I guess we were 10th graders at the time. They, they put us all in the bleachers and they had a, an officer from the county bring a, a vehicle out onto the field that had been absolutely destroyed in an automobile accident. And the point that they were making was your failure to heed the warnings about safe driving could result in this. 
take a good look at this vehicle and consider if that's what you want to happen to your life. It was effective. I still remember it to this day. That's, that's kind of a picture of what Jude is doing in verses 11 through 16. He, he's, kind of, he's kind of giving us a picture by going back to the Old Testament of, of what it would look like for us to just say, ah, that's not, that's not a big deal. And so Jude is going to encourage us in verses 11 through 16 to contend by recognizing the danger that these invaders present in the life of a church. Would you hear with me the word of God? Verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also... About these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault. Following after their own lusts, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Would you pray with me? God, help us to learn from these verses what it is that you would have us to learn so that we might worship you more truly, uh, more devotedly. God, that we might be a church that is not motivated by gaining an advantage for ourselves, but God, that we would be a church that is all about declaring the advantage, the great eternal advantage that we've already received in Christ. God, make us selfless so that we can show the love of Christ in our love for one another, in this community, and around the world. And do it for the glory of Christ our King, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Once more in these verses, Jude is, is clear, especially in verses 14 and 15, that the ungodly invaders will be judged by Jesus at his return. But the, the text is primarily focused not, not on their future judgment, but on their present destructiveness in the life of the church. It isn't just that they are headed for destruction, it is that they are destructive now in the life of the church. And the church cannot tolerate persistent, unrepentant, and arrogant ungodliness in people who claim to know Christ. See, the challenge in the 21st century, if we were to, to apply this to our context, is, is churches are tempted to put nice and acceptable and relevant and financially viable. Well, he, he gives a lot of money to the church, and so we'll just put up with that constant attitude or... or um, He's a real popular guy in the community, and if we really call out what's going on there, then it might hurt the church. We, we are tempted to put nice and acceptable and relevant and popular and trending and financially viable and 
pleasant ahead of holiness and godliness. But we've got to put holiness and godliness at the top of the list because if we fail to do that, Jude is warning us, that means we're not contending for the faith, but rather compromising with the world. You see, the church must reject a version of Christianity that is comfortable with arrogance and immorality because that version of Christianity harms the church's witness in the world. It threatens the health of the church and it distorts our understanding of the faith that truly saves. So what Jude wants us to see this morning is to contend for the faith, we must recognize the ungodly motives of the intruders. Verse 11, we must recognize that ungodly imposters pose a present danger. Verses 12 and 13, we've got to believe that the danger is eternally serious, that there's real consequences attached to these individuals. And finally, we must know that true believers delight in God and exist for Christ's glory. We've got to know the alternative that we should be looking for. So first, we, we've got to recognize that ungodly, we've got to recognize the ungodly motives of those who are invading churches for the sake of themselves. And this is serious, and we know it's serious because Jesus, or, or Jude rather, begins by saying, woe to them. Now, woes are most often in the Bible on the lips of Jesus. We think of the woes that Jesus pronounces upon the Pharisees in the book of Matthew. Or we think of Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Speaking of the horrors of God's judgment. The word woe in Greek is uai. In Hebrew, it's hui. It's one of those words that's like, oh, I mean... What do you say? It's, it's so dreadful. It's so incomprehensible what is facing the, the wrath of God poured out against the invaders that Jude is writing about is, is so great. We, Whoa. Hosea says, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. Woe. Jude is clear. The secret invaders are headed for an unspeakable destruction because they have not been motivated by the selflessness of Christ but by the arrogance of self. And to, and to call this out, he gives us three Old Testament examples. Cain and Balaam and Korah. First, he, he gives us the way of Cain. You will recall that Cain and Abel both bring offerings to the Lord in Genesis chapter 4, however, the Lord has regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's offering. Hebrews 11.4 explains this for us a bit and says that God accepts Abel's offering or his sacrifice because he offered it to him in faith. However, he did not accept Cain's offering because Cain came bringing an offering trying to get on God's good side, trying to justify himself as though his offering was enough to earn God's favor rather than trusting in God to have God's favor. You see, Cain had no sense of dependence upon God. He came to God thinking he deserved something from God, that God somehow owed him something. So it is with those who invade churches and make a mess of things. They think they're owed something by somebody. You don't know how long I've been around here. 
You don't know how long I've taught Sunday school or how long I've been a deacon or how long I've done this or that. These are the first things that are on their lips. The the things that are on their lips are not how great God is and what a privilege it is to be able to offer anything to God by faith and to be accepted by Him. It's, you don't know how long I've been around this place. The way of Cain is the way of anger and bitterness and entitlement. The intruders walk in this way. They come with an angry and sarcastic and superior disposition. They cannot bear to be ever confronted with any sin in their lives because they are consumed with what they see as justified anger. God gives Cain an opportunity to repent of his sin and to be accepted by God. And Cain says, no way, I'm going to go kill my brother. The way of Cain is the the way of those who are ready to pounce over any perceived slight or oversight in their lives. They will go to their graves angry people. Never knowing the joy of being accepted by God, not by what they do, not how how long they've been around, not by what they deserve, but by what God did for them through Jesus Christ, period. True believers never get over the joy of being accepted before the Father through the atoning grace that they've received in the Son, period. They walk in the way of Cain. Secondly, they walk in the way of Balaam. Balaam, as you will recall, is a prophet hired by the Midianites to curse the Israelites in Numbers 22-24. through You will recall that Balaam could not curse the Israelites But that does not absolve Balaam of his sin of accepting payment from the Moabite king in order to try to do it. You see, Balaam is motivated by financial gain, not by faithfulness to God. He's like a lot of the the prosperity preachers of our day. Flying around in upgraded corporate jets and whatever else to, to do the ministry. Fleecing the poor, holding out the promise of prosperity tomorrow if they'll just give a little bit more today urging people to give because of what they can get from God rather than because of what God has already given them which could never be repaid but we would delight to live our lives trying to repay him even though we couldn't like Balaam the secret invaders of the church aren't motivated by the pure word of God or care for God's people they are motivated by greed either financial right they they want to, to fleece the church in some way, or social gain, right? I, by being in the church, I get some good over here in the marketplace. Or by being in the church, people will think better of me in the community. Folks, I hope you're not here this morning for any other reason than Christ crucified for me. I hope you're not here for any other reason this morning than the great joy of being with the people of God and rehearsing what it is we'll be able to do for all eternity. I hope we're not here because it might pad my pocket in some way or somebody might think better of me at the office or any of those other reasons. If those things happen to happen, then fine. But that's not our motivation for being in church. And in the South, in the buckle of the Bible Belt, there's a great temptation to be involved in the life of a church for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with the reason for which we are here. All around the world, it doesn't make sense to put the ichthus on your business card. It still makes sense in places in the south to put the little fish 
on your business card and maybe I'll get some more clients. Maybe people will think better of me. But we are not here for any of those reasons. We are here simply and purely because Christ deserves the best we have to offer Him. We are here because He gave us His all, not for any other motivation. Thirdly, Jude's, Jude's uh, a third example is Korah. Korah. The story of Korah is recorded in Numbers chapter 16. Korah was a priest. He held the priestly position, but he resented the authority of the priests who were over him. He didn't like that Moses and Aaron got to be the, lead, the leaders. And so he challenged their authority. And as a result, God destroyed him and his followers. God's word says the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. That's a pretty severe and quick judgment. By mentioning Korah, Jude again highlights the sin of rebellion in the lives of these imposters, these intruders. They are marked by a disregard for godly authority and accountability in their lives. They don't want to submit to their pastors. They don't want to submit to other Christians. They don't want to submit to anyone. They will not enter into transparent relationships of accountability. They already have it all figured out. They've got it all together. They don't need anybody's help. They don't have time for people who are not as great as they are. But like Cain and like Balaam and like Korah, those who are motivated by hate or greed or rebellion will ultimately be destroyed for their ungodly motives and self-focus. Notice in verse 11, their destruction is written about as though it's already happened. It says they have perished. Now when did they perish? They, they haven't yet. But Jude's point is that the category of people who are rebellious and arrogant and hateful, they are headed for a certain destruction. So certain it's like it's already happened. But the future destruction of the imposters does not remove the present danger to the church. So secondly, not only do we need to recognize the ungodly motives, we also need to recognize that the ungodly, self-absorbed, self-focused imposters pose a present danger in the life of the church. In verses 12 and 13, Jude uses five metaphors to describe the secret invaders, hidden reefs and waterless clouds and fruitless trees and wild waves and wandering stars. When Jude says the gospel intruders are hidden reefs, he's saying that they are destructive. Reefs that sink ships are dangerous. Why? Because you can't see them. They're lurking there beneath the surface and to mask their destructiveness the imposters are good pretenders. Notice what they do in verse 12. Without fear or without shame, they get around the family of faith. They come to the love feast. They participate in the Lord's Supper and be a part of the, the family meal week after week after week and arrogantly sort of working the room even though their motives were destructive. Schreiner says this, some of those in the love feast were dangerous hypocrites, pretending to be full of love, but hiding their dangerous teaching and a lifestyle that threatened the church. Aiken adds this, they are egocentric and selfish. They know how to work a room. They're bold. They're confident. Almost too confident. 
It looks like having them around and following their leadership will always mean smooth sailing, but they are reefs that spell destruction for those who travel their path. Why? Because they care for themselves, verse 12. The word care, interestingly enough here, is the word for feeding of sheep. It's the word for shepherding. Rather than feeding others, they only want to feed themselves. Church is about what they can get from people, not what they can give to God's people. They are hidden reefs, positioning themselves, if they can, to sink God's people and God's mission. Then Jude tells us they are like waterless clouds, blown away by the wind. They leave us disappointed. Now, some of you who've been in Roanoke for the last week, you'd appreciate some waterless clouds because you've had plenty of rain. But the image here is of a, like of a crop that's yearning for rain. And there's a cloud that comes by and maybe it's going to give me some refreshing water and yet it's blown away and leaves no rain. Proverbs 25, 14 says, The one who boasts about a gift that does not exist is like clouds and winds without rain. You know, the church is always in need of people who will serve, who will minister, who will love, and who will do so from right motives. Not just when it's convenient, not just when they can get around to it, but faithfully and consistently. I think about our children's ministry. It takes like 50 volunteers a week to run our preschool and children's ministry. you got to have two per room. And when, when someone texts on Saturday night, that they're not going to be able to make it on Sunday morning. I understand that. That happens in our family sometimes too. Fever comes on and with the kids, that sort of thing. But if you're going to serve in our children's ministry, and we need you to serve in our children's ministry, we desperately do. Don't be like a waterless cloud that's blown away by the wind. If you're going to commit, be faithful. Be a cloud that brings rain. The, the fresh living water of the presence of God to the lives of children week in and week out. And, I, and I'm asking you, we, we still need help in that area. We need people who will be faithful and regular and consistent. If we're going to reach the Roanoke Valley, I'm telling you, after serving in Puerto Rico, it, it happens by reaching kids. You want to reach family, you got to reach a kid. You reach a kid, see their heart changed, and then see mama and daddy come to the party or the event or the celebration, and then boom, you've got an opportunity. If we want to reach the Roanoke Valley with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is time to get serious about children's ministry. It is time to stop texting Lynn Wampler on Friday or Saturday that you're sorry and you will not be able to fulfill your commitment. And I know that's hard because you're the ones who've committed, and I'm grateful for it. But we need more who will serve. We need people who will be like Clouds that bring rain, that water the ground. The fertile soil of children who have hearts wide open to hear why it is that they exist. They exist for the glory of God and to give them that message. So I'm challenging you, church. Let's not be waterless clouds. Let's, bring, bring, let's be clouds that bring the refreshing water of the Word to children and to families here in the Roanoke Valley. Thirdly, he tells us, that the imposters are autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. The word autumn means late autumn, by the way. The harvest is nearly over. In other, in other words, there's been plenty of time for this tree to produce some fruit. It's not like they got saved yesterday and there's not any fruit yet. 
They've supposedly been walking with Christ for a long time. But when you get close and you start to look for some fruit, even though it's late autumn in their life, you can't find any fruit. The harvest is nearly over, but the tree remains fruitless. These imposters have been around God's people. They've even stood before God's people. Maybe even teached God's word. Maybe even memorized piles of scripture. But their actual lives and character do not reflect the fruit of the Spirit. They have no fruit because they've not been changed at the root. They are doubly dead. Their root has not been changed, therefore there's no fruit produced. They've heard the message of surrendering their lives and our desires and our ambitions and our glory and our will to Christ, but they ultimately reject it. Or they try to have it both ways. I'll live for myself Monday through Saturday, and then on Sunday I'll pretend to live for Jesus and maybe even put a little bit in the plate, and then I'll go do it all over again, and I will head to my grave self-deceived, doubly dead, Never changed at the root. Never really producing the fruit of Christ in my life. There's no repentance. There's no remorse. No reservation for the damage they cause by their duplicitous lives. Because they are dead. And on the day of judgment, God will uproot them. Then Jude tells us the imposters are wild waves of the sea. Casting up their shame like foam. The imposters bring with them the defilement of wickedness. Jude has in mind Isaiah 57 verse 20, which says the wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. Now they were not thinking of the water that we saw in Puerto Rico. It was crystal clear, beautiful water. Just letting you know for the next mission trip. It was amazing. But I think, I think the image here is of like Myrtle Beach. You ever been to Myrtle Beach? It's like green, nasty, and as soon as you get out of Myrtle Beach, I mean, I like Myrtle Beach, but it's much better to be able to see to the bottom. Like, I can see my feet down there. That was amazing. But when you go to Myrtle Beach, as soon as you get out, you know, you got the sunscreen and then the the litter and the grime and everything on you. The first thing I want to do when I get out of the ocean at Myrtle Beach is get a hot shower, like, right now. And what he's saying is that, that feeling of being in the ocean water and then getting out and the sun begins to bake the grime onto your face. That's what they're like. They're like that grimy foam that coats a beach, leaving a sticky residue, residue of shame behind. Jude is telling us that we recognize an imposter not merely by the words coming from their mouths, but also by what they do and how they live with other people. I've encountered leaders in churches who've quoted scripture more impressively than than any other pastor I've known. They've seemed to care for widows and shut-ins, and then they've behaved inappropriately around young women, young ladies, with no remorse when they were confronted about it in their lives. Self-justification. Quoting scripture in defense of their immoral behavior. These secret invaders may seem impressive, some even for a long time, but they are still wild waves. You think about a wild wave, what does it do? Catches you by surprise. I love to body surf. Get out there and wait for that wild wave. You're looking out, 
in the distance and it's building and it's coming. And that's kind of the image that Jude is sharing with us. Everything seems serene. Everything seems peaceful. But out on the horizon, there's someone who's pretending. And he's a wild wave building. And if you're not prepared for it, it can overtake you. Jude warns us so that we will recognize the wild waves and be able to stand. And finally... They are like wandering stars or shooting stars, seemingly shining bright today, but then gone tomorrow. David writes this, they are stars, but not shining where God has commanded them. They are wandering or erring stars. They may appear to have a light about them, but they stray from the faith. And they are unreliable guides whose light ends literally in the blackness of darkness that has been kept forever by God. For those who seek to lead his church astray. Church, we've got to recognize the ungodly motives of the imposters. We've got to recognize the present danger. And thirdly, we've got to believe that this danger is eternally serious. It's not something that we just kick the can down the road on. God's coming judgment of those who invade churches is not a matter to be taken lightly. The church puts herself in danger if she does not stand firm in her convictions and continues to associate with people living a false gospel. To make his point, Jude says that the judgment of the intruders had been predicted by Enoch, who declared that the Lord came with thousands of his holy ones, meaning angels, to execute judgment upon all, and all all here means all the ungodly. The word came occurs in the past tense, not because the judgment has already occurred, but to communicate to us once more that God's judgment is as good as done. Verse 4 tells us that the people who enter churches and undermine the faith are marked out for judgment. And now Jude tells us about Enoch's prophecy of their judgment. Now what's interesting is that again, Jude is using a source that is not included in the Old Testament. He's referring to 1st Enoch Chapter 1, verse 9, which is a non-biblical book. But what Jude is doing is affirming the truth of that statement that Enoch made without endorsing the whole book as divine or special revelation. Now you remember Enoch walked with God, right? Remember that that chapter in Genesis? So-and-so was born and he had sons and he died. So-and-so was born and he had sons and he died. And -and so-and-so was born and he had sons and he died. Then you get to Enoch and he had sons and he walked with God. And he was not. In other words, God took him. So in Jewish tradition, there was this oral history of what Enoch had said. And there was this prophecy that Enoch had made, which Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, this is an accurate prophecy that God is coming to judge all the ungodly. Even Enoch sees it. Even Enoch warns about false teachers and false gospels. All the way back to the beginning, God has been warning about false teachers and false gospels and people who pretend to love God but really don't. So the need to contend for the faith as cultures and so-called Christians seek to water it down shouldn't be a surprise to the church. Do you see what Jude is doing? He's saying, if Enoch talked about this, then don't be surprised like, oh wow, I can't believe we have to deal with this. It's nothing new under the sun. So in case we are still tempted to think that contending for the faith isn't that important, Jude says that Christ is coming 
to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, of which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you think Jude thinks they are ungodly? Four times in one verse. Their, their coming judgment is predicted by Enoch, but it is also proper. Why? Because they are ungodly. Well, what's ungodly about them? Their actions are ungodly. Their methods and their motives are ungodly. They are not repentant sinners, but they are ungodly sinners who have spoken with their lives and their lips against the Lord. So Jude removes from the church any doubt about the urgency of acting. When we're confronted with issues in the life of a church that have an urgency for the gospel, sometimes what we want to do is say, well, it's not that important. Really, it couldn't be that bad. And what Jude is saying is if they are quadruply ungodly, then we've got to take action. The intruders are not just misunderstood. They aren't just that way. They don't just need more time. They are ungodly. And they speak against God. And when Christ returns, Romans 3.19 tells us their mouths will be silenced. Finally, we need to know the alternative. In verse 16, he sort of summarizes what you're looking for. And I want to turn that on its head this morning and say, well, if, man, this is a, this is a tough sermon, ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. Well, well, what would the alternative to the grumblers and the complainers and the imposters be? It would be that we would know true believers are those who delight in God and exists for Christ's glory. So if, if he's told us, spent five verses telling us what, what the imposters look like, and now he concludes in verse 16, this is what the imposters look like, well then what is the alternative? What does a real deal Christian, a true believer, look like? The Old Testament examples help us understand that secret invaders posed a serious problem predicted beforehand. And now in verse 16 he says, well, well how do you recognize them? And first he says they are grumblers. They are like the Israelites who perished in the wilderness. And like Korah, who was not satisfied to be a priest, they constantly murmur and grumble and complain, verse 16. Schreiner says this, they lack joy and are critical and quick to detect the weaknesses of others. They are never satisfied, believing ultimately that God owes them better and that they know better. They complain Constantly. Why do they complain constantly? I found an article on the Huffington Post of all places about six things that characterize complainers. I want to read several of them for you now. Complainers complain because they believe they deserve more. Complainers complain because they believe they deserve better. Complainers complain because they think they could have done it better. Well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Complainers complain because whatever went wrong could not have been their fault. And complainers complain because if I can't be happy, ain't nobody going to be happy. They were complainers. Always evaluating, always assessing, always critiquing, 
always having a critical eye about everything, never having the joy of the Lord, which comes from this understanding. I get to be here at all is the grace of God. Thanks for letting me have a seat at the table. And when you think about life in the family of God in that way, that I get to be here at all is incredible. Guess what happens to complaining? It disappears. We don't deserve anything. I don't deserve more. I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve better. I deserve death, hell, and the grave. I couldn't have done it better. I couldn't do it at all. Everything that I have, Paul says, is what I've received from God. Whatever went wrong, it probably is my fault. But who cares whose fault it is because God is sovereign and if we're endeavoring to serve Him and love Him, He's going to work it out. Next, they're fault finders. This word is close in meaning to grumbling. They're discontented and complaining and never satisfied. North Roanoke, I don't want to be a church that's characterized by complaining and grumbling and fault finding. That should not be, that is not the church of God. The church of God is not characterized by grumbling and complaining and fault finding. They're discontented all the time, never satisfied, following their own lusts. Ultimately, the complaint comes from this. I just can't get my way. The selflessness that God desires for His church and what they desire for themselves are at odds. And so they complain and they find fault. It's reflected in their arrogant speech. Jude says literally, their mouth speaks arrogantly or boastfully. They exult in themselves and not in Christ. Aiken says this, they're big talkers. They portray themselves as the hero of every story, giving the appearance of spiritual superiority. And then Jude concludes by saying they consistently seek to gain an advantage. They seek position or status or financial gain or power because they still do not know the joy of the eternal advantage of belonging to Christ. They somehow seem spiritual, but it's really just a show. They thrive in churches that are biblically illiterate and theologically weak, in churches that are looking for the next hero rather than worshiping Christ, the only hero. This is why people who have made the most lasting impression in my life are those who walk with Christ and are happy to be behind the scenes. I I love our PowerPoint guys, our security guys. I love all of you. But there's a lot of stuff that happens every week at North Roanoke Baptist Church that nobody sees. And there's somebody faithfully laboring behind the scenes, not because they get paid to do it, not because somebody pats them on the back every week, but because they love Jesus. North Roanoke, if we're going to contend for the faith, we all need to be those kinds of people. I got everything I need from Jesus. I get to be in the family of faith. Whatever you ask me to do for the glory of Christ, I am all in. So if the mark of a secret invader is someone who grumbles and finds fault and does what they want to do on their timeline and speaks boastfully and flatters people for attention, how can we proactively contend for the faith, North Rona? We got to do the opposite. We've got to be clothed with the humility of Christ. 
We've got to go serve others in Jesus' name. It's why we go to places like Puerto Rico. We must not grumble, but rather delight in what we learned back in verses 1 and 2. In Christ, we are kept and we are called and we are beloved. We must be quick to confess our sins to one another. Because guess what? We will grumble and we will complain. It'll happen. In our flesh, eight hot days in the middle of Puerto Rico, logistics are a nightmare with 28 people in two different houses and 55 kids and VBS and block parties. At some point, you're going to want to complain. But how you deal with that, do you double down on yourself and how good and great you are? Or do you go to the Lord and say, God, forgive me. I love these people. What a blessing to be on mission. Use me in this moment. We must be quick to confess our sins to one another and quick to forgive. We've got to understand that Christian leadership is not about having a seat at the table or in a voice in the mix. It's about the glory of Jesus. We must constantly evaluate our motives and pray that God would consume us not with a bitter and angry and complaining and entitled heart, but with an overwhelming passion for the glory of Christ in our community by God's grace. We are and we will continue to become a church that prizes and lives out the gospel. Not complaining, not grumbling, but delighting in the goodness of Christ and laying down our lives and our privileges and our preferences for the glory of Christ, our King. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we exalt you this morning. God, we confess that when we read this assessment of those who are invading the church, that we can look at our own lives and see seasons when we have been more prone to complain or to critique than we have been to serve and to give and to pray. God, we want to be a church that reflects the character of Jesus. So God, I pray that you would give us the courage this morning. If if some of us have had a, a an entitled heart or a bitter heart or a complaining heart, and God, we we maybe you've shown us through your spirit this morning some area where we just need to release it to you and trust you, God, that, that you would give freedom in this room this morning, maybe even to come and to pray and to, to confess our sin. God, if there's a relationship in the family of faith that is is not as it should be, that you would give liberty. Uh, for a brother or a sister to go to one another and to, to confess their sin and to repent and, and to find the, the healing and the wholeness that only comes through faith in Christ. God, whatever you want to do as we sing this hymn of response, I pray that you would do it for the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.